As you're taking your seats, grab your Bibles and open up to the book of First Peter. Well, this week, um, the evangelical world was rocked by the suicide of a young pastor, um, an associate pastor in a megachurch in California. This young pastor had struggled for years with depression and despair. It wasn't a secret. He was very open about his struggles and about his depression. He'd even started an organization called uh, Anthem of Hope in order to help those who struggled just like him, who had bouts of significant depression and despair and who needed to hold on to and hold fast to hope. But last week, in a moment of weakness and in a moment of hopelessness, he took his own life, leaving behind a wife and two young children. Sadly, this is not the first time, nor will this be the last time that this happens to a Christian, let alone a pastor. And certainly, I understand this poses, in some sense, more questions than it provides answers for us this morning. And my objective is not to provide answers and to try and figure out how this could happen to a pastor or a Christian at that My point is simply to acknowledge that this kind of despair and depression and this kind of hopelessness can be experienced by any one of us. Charles Spurgeon, the great prince of preachers from the 19th century, himself experienced great bouts of depression, sometimes lasting up to three months at a time. He would go into great despair. I had a friend who called me this week, and in light of the news of this suicide, he said to me, he said, I I never imagined that I could experience feelings and thoughts like that myself, but I have. And the truth is that countless Christians have struggled through the centuries with deep despair. They've gone through deep valleys of despair in their lives. Some of you may be sitting here and you may be stuck in what you perceive as a deep valley of despair and depression. My point is that none of us are immune from these kinds of temptations, from these kinds of feelings. And it's interesting because Peter, who writes this letter, is writing to Christians and that's just his concern. His concern is that the Christians that he is writing to may slide into this kind of despair and hopelessness. That they themselves, because of the mounting pressures and persecution from the world around them, might find themselves in a moment of weakness, in a moment of despair, in a moment of frailty, and they might find themselves in this place of utter hopelessness. Peter knows that this is possible for any Christian. And he is writing not just to prevent us from sliding into hopelessness, he is writing to call us to grab on to hope. But not just any hope. The hope that Peter is calling us to cling to isn't some kind of wishful thinking. It's not some kind of a pie in the sky. It's not the sense of, I I really hope this happens kind of hope. It is a true hope. It is a lasting hope. It is a sure hope. It is a steady hope. It is a living hope. That is the kind of hope that Peter offers to us. That is the kind of hope that the gospel offers to us. That is the kind of hope that the Spirit of God wants to offer to us this morning through his word. A hope that will help us to live for Jesus when we are tempted to stray from Jesus. 
And in fact, this is the very point of Peter writing this letter to us. Peter waits to the very end of his letter to identify the main theme for which he is writing. And here's what he says in chapter 12. He is writing this so that we may stand firm. He knows how hard this life is, especially for those who follow Jesus Christ. He knows, he knows the pressure, he knows the potential hopelessness that we face. You see, this is the kind of hope that Christians have, but often fail to understand and therefore fail to employ. And this morning, what I want to do is I want to present to you the hope that that the Spirit of God offers to us through Peter. And this morning, what we're going to look at is mainly theological. And here's what I mean by that. You know, some messages are heavily practical. They lead to a lot of practical application in our lives. But there are some messages that we need to hear that are predominantly theological. But listen, I, I want you just to get this. It is no less valuable. In fact, what we need to understand is this. It is our theology that holds us fast. It is the truth of what we believe that gives us the hope we need. And that's what Peter wants to pull us back into. He wants us to say this morning that we believe what is right and what we believe is the very thing we need to help us weather the fiercest of storms we may face in this world for following Jesus Christ. Peter has laid out for us in his introduction the case for hope and the hope that we find in the fact that God is saving us. And in verse three, you can look at it with me, here's what he says, he says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. The word of God this morning speaks to us about this living hope driving towards a deeper and more full understanding of what this living hope truly is. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. First, I want you to see this. Our living hope is a gift we adore. Our living hope is a gift we adore. And Peter starts off in verse three with praise and adoration. I don't know if you caught that. There is this sense of awe and wonder, and it's all related to the living hope that's been given to believers. Don't miss that Peter is telling us that there is something that we have been given that should thrill our souls, that should evoke praise and adoration in the depths of our hearts. God is deserving of our adoration, Peter says right out of the gate. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to note this. Listen, before Peter describes anything that God has done, he wants us to take note of this. Listen, God is worthy of our adoration and praise, not simply because of what he has done, but because of who he is. This is so, so vital to understand. Who is he exactly? Peter says he is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
what he is describing here is the relationship between Jesus and God the Father in the Trinity, in the, the triune God. What we see is that in the humanity of Jesus, Jesus looked at God as God, and Jesus looked at God as his very own Father. The term Father signifies exactly how they relate to one another. We were reminded last week that the Father plans a salvation and the Son responds and acts in obedience to the will of the Father. There is embedded in this one phrase, this profound concept, the pure and total trust of Jesus when it came to the Father. He looked at the Father and he said, you are God, you are my Father, I trust you in each and every circumstance, in each and every situation, your will is best, I will follow you. We know in the earthly life of Jesus, in the incarnation, that Jesus yielded to the will of the Father over and over again. He said he always does the will of the Father in John 5, 19. And this is important to grasp right out the gates because, listen, sometimes, sometimes life seems hopeless and hard. Sometimes we struggle and suffer. Sometimes we encounter pain and difficulty. But as we look to the life of Jesus, one thing we realize is this, no matter what the circumstances, Jesus Christ trusted the Father. He trusted him completely. If you look at the life of Jesus, one thing you see very quickly is that following God meant suffering in incredible ways. This is the truth that Peter is addressing in the lives of believers. We saw that last week. Again, following God means suffering for Jesus. When we choose to follow Jesus Christ, we experience suffering in this life. They are, after all, exiles who have been dispersed. They're strangers and sojourners. They're foreigners. Our hope is in the living God. That's what we are reminded of when we consider this phrase and we consider how Jesus responded to God. Our hope is in the living God who is working all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. You see, the greatest gift that we have been given is our great God who is worthy of our trust and adoration. Regardless of the circumstances you're facing, you need to embrace this truth. God is worthy of your adoration and praise. That's why Job, who by the way suffered because of his commitment to righteousness and commitment to God, he suffered. That's why he could say amidst the craziest circumstances, when everything was stripped away, when he was struggling with pain emotionally and physically, he could say these words with confidence, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. This is what God calls every believer to be able to express in every situation. But Peter goes on. You see, it's not just for who he is, but it is actually for what he's done. We are able to adore the giver of all these beautiful gifts because of what he's done. And here in the rest of chapter three, he says this, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now that statement, that verse, is one of the most astounding phrases in the Bible. It is jam-packed with rich theology. It is a treasure trove of grace. And here, what Peter gives to us is really the theme of this book. He says that we have been given a living hope as a gift from God. 
Now, living hope is intended to be understood in contrast to a dead hope. The world around us has hope, that's for sure. It's, it's not that we can't find hope in this world. The issue is this, that the, the hope that we are offered in this world and that we often run to is not a living hope. It is in actuality a dead hope. In fact, look at what the word of God says about the hope that's found in this world. In Ephesians chapter 2.12, the apostle Paul writes these words. He says, remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, listen to this, having no hope and without God in the world. 1 Thessalonians 4.13 says this, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, those who have died in the Lord, that uh, you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. You see what Peter's doing here? Peter is saying that we have a hope that is unlike anything that this world has to offer. This world, because of sin, offers to us a hope of of sorts, but it is a hope that, that is lifeless. It is dead. It is futile. It has no ability to be fruitful in your life. It has no ability to give you any life at all. It is temporary. It can't sustain you. It can't provide for you what your heart hungers for and what your heart longs for, what you desperately need. It is a dead hope. You see, the things that this world has to offer, the hope that we run to in this world cannot offer the hope of rescue from sin. That's the issue here. We cannot find hope to be reconciled with God in the things of this world. We cannot find hope to rest from our circumstances. But our hope is living in the sense that it is sure and secure. That's what he's getting at here. It is anchored in something concrete and real. And not only is it sure and secure, listen to this, the living hope that we hold onto and have is productive and fruitful and fertile. Ours is a hope that has the power to change how we live because we know that what we have hope in is actually true. Peter says that this living hope is a result, listen, of God's great mercy. But God looked at us and he saw our hopeless condition. He saw that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. He saw that we were without hope in the world. We could not save ourselves. We could not get ourselves to him. And God took pity upon us. Our living hope is a result of the great mercy of God. He did not give us what we deserve. Instead, he came for us. And I want you to see too that not only is it according to his great mercy, but that he has caused us, look at the language here, it's so beautiful. He has caused us to be born again. Again, the issue here is that spiritually we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We had no ability to claw our way to God. We had no ability to reconcile ourselves with God. I said this last week, I've said it before, let me say it again because so often what we hear from the world around us is that you know Christianity is a crutch for weak people, right? We hear that all the time. Christianity, Jesus is a crutch for weak people. Listen, Christianity and Jesus are not a crutch for weak people, okay? It's not something we lean on because we think we're weak. Christian, Jesus is a defibrillator for dead people. 
<laughs> we're not just weak. We're not just sick. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. And God caused us to be born again. He gave us new life, both spiritually and the promise of new physical life to come at a future date. Like this is what we celebrate in the gospel. This is why he says, blessed be the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at what he's given us. He has given to us a living hope. When we lived in utter hopelessness without him. So what's the point of him drawing attention? Why does he use this language? Here's why. He wants us to know something. Everything we have, all of our hope is not a result of us. It's all a result of God. It is his initiative. Just consider this for a moment. No child ever took credit for their own birth, right? I mean, there are some parents who like to lovingly remind their children of this frequently. I brought you into this world and I can take you out of it. This is God's point. Do you get this? God is looking at his children and saying, listen, this isn't a result. You didn't do this. I did this. I did this for you because of my great love for you. I rescued you because you couldn't ever rescue yourself. This is why God deserves our highest praise. This is why we get together and we sing the way we do on Sundays. We have been given a living hope in Jesus Christ. And by the way, it's anchored and secured and made sure by a real historical reality, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Do you see how he draws our attention to that one event? He said, how can I be so sure about this living hope? He says, you want to be sure? You want to know how secure it is, this living hope, that this reality that you've been brought from death to life? Look at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Right? The resurrection is the statement of God that death and sin do not have the final word. There is one who has come to put death to death. Sin and death are the reason for the hopelessness we experience in this world. All of the hopelessness of this world is a result of sin and death. But God says, I have come to overcome the grave. And the resurrection of Christ from the dead secures for his people both new resurrection bodies, listen, in the future, but also new spiritual life now. You see, the reason our hope is living is because the one we hope in is alive. And here's what, here's what Peter is doing, okay? This is so important to see. Peter is pulling our gaze away from present circumstances toward a future reality that is anchored in a past event, okay? He's saying, look, uh, I know, I know life is challenging and I know life is hard. I know life right now, as you're living it out, it often feels hopeless. You are prone to despair. You maybe wanna compromise and give in. Maybe there's discouragement happening right now in this very room. Maybe you're just so fed up with how life is going and you're not sure how you're going to carry on. You know, in the past two weeks, I have spoken to people with debilitating and humiliating illnesses I have spoken to people with broken marriages. I have so, spoken to people with suicidal thoughts and who have attempted to take their own life. I have spoken with people who have estranged children who are in financial ruin and destitution. And that's not even because of following Jesus Christ. That's simply because we live in a sinful fallen world. Like life is hard. 
you see, when we look at the resurrection, here's what we're reminded of. We have a living hope because the resurrection means that sin is defeated. It doesn't get the final word. Sin and the circumstances that it produces right now for us, they will not win in the end. Jesus Christ wins the day. Amen, church? That is the living hope that we cling to in Christ Jesus. You see, the resurrection reminds us that whatever happens to us in this world is trivial compared to the blessing that is in store for you. It is the promise, yes, of new life now, but it is also the promise of eternal life to come. And you know what that means? That means this, listen, if you are in Christ, your best life isn't now. Some of you are like, hallelujah, that's the best news I've heard all day. If you're in Christ, let me say it again, your best life isn't now and it never will be. Sorry, Joel. Listen, if your best life is now, you're in big trouble. If your best life is now, you're in big trouble because listen, without Jesus Christ, the life that awaits you is far more tragic and far more hopeless than the current existence you're experiencing now. And what Peter is wanting to do is draw our gaze again to something that is more beautiful, a promise that has been made by our God that we get to cling to. And here's, here's the reality. I'll throw this on the screen behind me. Just listen. When you understand that your best life isn't now, you can live life now best. Okay? Do you get that? When you understand, because so many of us are fighting for somehow to make this, this, make this our best life now, right? It's gotta be the best now. Now, I'm not opposed to having a, a good life now. That's not what we're talking about. But let's be honest, sometimes life is just hard. And if we are consumed with making this our best life now, we are actually losing sight of what the gospel says. Our best life isn't here and now. Our best life is yet to come. And when we look there, we can actually live the life that we have right now as best as we possibly can. And here's what I mean by that. To the honor and glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, we can make wise decisions that are pleasing to him. We can make the right decisions in the midst of suffering and trials and persecution and temptation. We can make the decisions that are going to lead to Towards our sanctification and growth and to the honor and glory again of Jesus Christ. That's what he's doing here. You see, understanding this not only enables you to endure, it actually produces a life of adoration and worship. You can look at your circumstances and you can wrestle with the difficulty of them, but in the end, you can cling to your hope that is coming and you can say, listen, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Some of you in here, you, you've come in here and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ. And what we're talking about here is a living hope. And my question to you this morning is this, do you want it? Do you want this living hope that we're talking about right now? Do you want to enjoy the, the living hope that can get you through this current life and all of the difficulties and struggles that you may have? Do you want it? And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, here is the question for you. This has been a gift that has been given to you by God. Do you adore it? Do you treasure it? And do you praise the one who has given it to you? Are you living a life of praise and worship? Our living hope is a gift we adore. Secondly, our living hope is a glory we anticipate. Peter is just carrying on this theme. Listen, he, he again, you just have to catch this. In every verse, he is pushing us into the future. 
He is pushing our gaze out towards what awaits us. He's calling us to not be consumed with the present reality that we find ourselves in. He talks here in verse four about our living hope. Notice what he says, and and he refers to our living hope in a nuanced way. He says that we have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ to the dead. And, And look at this, to an inheritance an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. He talks about our living hope in light of an anticipation of an inheritance that awaits each one of the children of God. Again, when do you get an inheritance? In the future. It's something that we anticipate, but here it's important to understand the significance of what he's describing here. Remember, we saw last week that Peter is using a heavily Jewish language to describe the Christian life. Now, um, it is very, just remember, last week what we said was this is a predominantly Gentile church that he's writing to. Now, of course, it's mixed. There is Jew and Gentile, but I believe the evidence is, is strong in the favor of the fact that this is predominantly a Gentile audience. And so here's the question. Well, how would they have understood these kind of allusions to the Old Testament? Here it is. Listen, the moment somebody was saved into the body of Christ, they were steeped in the Old Testament scriptures. All you have to do is read from Acts. What they did was they began to gather regularly. They gathered daily. They gathered every week um, in a public setting, and they began to pour over the scriptures. And, and what were the only scriptures they had access to back then? It's not a trick question. It's the Old Testament. Their faith was founded upon the Old Testament. That's why so much of the New Testament, the authors are constantly drawing from the Old Testament realities. Listen, this is a great, listen, just exhortation and encouragement to know the Old Testament. By the way, Jesus, remember on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, remember what he did? He walked back through the Old Testament scriptures to show them every place that pointed to him. He was showing them, listen, the scriptures are pointing forward to something better, to something greater. And all of the, the, the early church, they were steeped so heavily in the Old Testament scriptures. Surely these illusions to the Old Testament were not lost upon them and they should not be lost upon us. Now I say all of that to say this, read the Old Testament. Read the Old Testament. Don't neglect it for the New Testament. In fact, you cannot rightly understand the New Testament unless you are diving deep into the Old Testament. But here are the words that Peter used to describe our inheritance. They actually all relate to something significant that was promised to the nation of Israel, to the land that was the inheritance of Israel. If you're familiar with the Old Testament and you hear the word inheritance, all of a sudden your mind goes to the promise that God made to Abraham. All of a sudden it goes to uh, the book of Deuteronomy and Numbers in Joshua where this term inheritance is used over and over and over again to describe what awaited the people of God. Let me give you just an example of this. Deuteronomy 26 verse one says this, when you come into the land that that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance and have taken possession of it and live in it. Joshua 11.23 says this, so Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses, and Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotment, and the land had rest from war. Let me give you one more. Psalm 105.11 says this, to you I will give the land of Canaan as your portion for an inheritance. That's just three verses. I could give you dozens upon dozens of verses. 
You see, God gave the land to Israel as an inheritance, and in the land, he gave every tribe and family an inheritance. And he gave it to them with a lasting right of ownership. You see, while they, they wandered in the wilderness, here's why this is so important. While they were wandering in the wilderness, while they were strangers and sojourners and aliens, what kept them moving forward? It was this, the promise of the inheritance that was in front of them. But you see, like Israel in the wilderness, the New Testament people of God are two aliens and strangers. We're pilgrims. We're traveling right now through the wilderness. We make our way through a world that is becoming more hostile and is often very harsh towards our faith. And yet what we see is like the people of old, we are not wandering beggars cast off from our possessions. In fact, we hold a sure title to the inheritance that God has given to us. You see, there is a glory we anticipate that far outshines and outlasts the glory of this present world. And that's what Peter is drawing our attention to. You see, the land promise that God had given to the nation of Israel was always about something bigger and better. It was always about something more. It was always about something greater. The land was a a little piece of geography amidst all the other nations of the world. It was a piece of property that God had set apart and he had set apart his people and he told them that they would inherit this place where he would be king amongst them, where he would be their God and they would be his people. He would dwell in the midst of them and righteousness would reign. The author of Hebrews, he speaks to this future reality and he says these words in Hebrews 11, 13 through 16. He says this, these all died, speaking of those who had heard the promises of God, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. He says, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. And having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. You hear that language? For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. Sound familiar? If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is, listen, listen to those things, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. You want to know what this is saying? Listen, the people of old, Abraham, and and all of the the fathers of the nation of Israel, they looked towards the land, and they realized that that land prefigured something better. It prefigured a heavenly city that was yet to come, a city where righteousness would reign, a city where God would rule, a city where God would dwell amongst his people and they would dwell amongst their God. They looked towards a heavenly city that was yet to come and they believed with all of their hearts that God would make that a reality. That's how they could navigate this world as exiles and strangers and aliens. And can I just say this? You know, sometimes we have misconceptions about what the future is going to look like. We, we somehow think that the future is all spiritual, floating on clouds, and we have misconceptions about heaven. But do you realize that what we are awaiting is a future physical reality? Do you know that? It's a future physical reality. 
And the hope that we have is still physical. And in fact, listen to what Peter says in 2 Peter 3, 12 and 13. He says this, we're waiting for the, the hastening and the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens, he's speaking of this current earth, will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. The world as we know it will no longer be. And he says these words, but according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. This is the hope that will fully, be fully realized excuse me, in the new heavens and the new earth. This is what John speaks of in Revelation 21 and 22. It is a new city, a city that is not just one small piece of land, but a city that spans the entire globe from coast to coast, from sea to sea. Glory of God will reign. And his point is this. Listen, we are sojourners. We're strangers and aliens and exiles in this world. We face, yes, suffering for the sake of Jesus Christ now. And our hope is directly tied to the glorious future inheritance that we rightly anticipate. Our hope, in in other words, is not in the here or now. It's in the then and there. And again, he's pulling us away from where our hearts naturally turn to, finding hope here and now. There is an intended contrast here that he wants to draw out between the glory of the temporary world that we live in and the glory of the eternal world that awaits us. The temporary world that we live in is perishable. It is defiled by sin and it is fading out of existence as he mentions in 2 Peter 3 verse 12. It will no longer exist. It will not last forever like this. You know, in effect, Peter is actually reiterating what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 16, 19 through 21, where he says, listen, don't don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moss and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. Instead, store up for yourself treasures in heaven, right, where neither moth or rust destroy and thieves can neither break in nor steal. It's like, listen, what exactly are you holding on to for hope? If you place your hope in this temporary world, in the things of this world that have a temporary glory, right? They have a temporary beauty. They have a temporary kind of satisfaction, a temporary kind of enjoyment that we can rightly experience. If you put your hope there, in the end, you will find out it too will fade. It too is defiled. It will not last. It will not suffice. He knows that in the midst of suffering, in the midst of difficulty, we are tempted to put our hopes in the things that have a lesser glory. We put our hope in in the things of this world. That's what he's saying. That won't last. We put our hope in our job, our career. We put our hope in our possessions, right? Our money. We build bigger barns. We put our hope in our, our reputations or our accomplishments. We put our hope in, in, in fitness, in hobbies, in entertainment, in relationships. You know, I, I, I just got to be honest with you. As a preacher, I feel like a broken record up here a lot of times. So I'm like, yeah, you've said the same. You know, you're always saying the same old things. We always try to trust the same old things. You want to know why that is? It's because it's always the same old things. There's nothing new under the sun. We always gravitate back to the same old things. It's the brokenness of humanity. We're like a broken record. We keep resorting back to the things that we know. Listen, we know experientially, don't we? We know they can't satisfy. We know they're gonna leave us emptier in the end, and yet we still keep running back. Like, how foolish are we? And the issue here is this. You have a living hope that's better than that. 
You have an inheritance that has a greater glory than the inheritance that you try to find or accumulate in the things of this world. He's saying, listen, listen, regardless of the pressure you're facing, don't give in, don't quit, don't compromise, don't become like those you've been called out from. You have something so much better. Now, let me just say this. There are very few of us, maybe none of us in here, who are actually suffering for Jesus Christ, okay? You realize that right now, in our culture, in this room, I'm not sure there, maybe I, I could be wrong, and if this is you, God bless you, keep pressing on, but there are, I would argue next to nobody in this room is suffering for following Jesus Christ. You know what I mean by that? No persecution. You're not losing your job. You're not being hated. Maybe in some very minor ways we we face this kind of stuff in our culture. There are very few of us in this room who are actually suffering. Now, there are some of us who are. Uh, I've talked to some of you. Some of you are suffering immensely. Some of you are suffering emotionally, physically, Some of you are in a great deal of of pain and you're experiencing suffering in this life and this life has been very hard and and you're just kind of pressing on and holding fast and trying to make it through. But the reality is the majority of us in here are not suffering, we're simply stressed. That's the biggest obstacle we face. Do you realize that? We're just stressed. Like, life is hard. We're busy. Our kids are in too many sports. I don't read my Bible enough. I gotta clean my house. Like, welcome to life. And what I would say, honestly, honestly, is this, is that we are dealing mainly with stress. We're not dealing with the people in First Peter are dealing with right now. We're just not. And we need to be honest about that. There are people around the world who are, who are suffering for the sake of Jesus Christ, who are struggling. Listen, they're holding on for dear life, and their lives are at stake for following Jesus Christ. That's simply put, not us. But here's what I would say. Listen, we know that there is a principle that we can grab a hold of. In our stress, listen, in our stressed out situations, we often find ourselves running to things that we believe will give us hope, okay? There's a parallel between suffering and stress. And this is what Peter is after. When you're stressed out, what do you run to, or excuse me, when you're suffering, where do you run to find hope and comfort? Right, the same can be asked right now in your life in a different way, but in a parallel way. Where do you run to in your life to find comfort and hope when you are stressed? And here's why I want to say this to you. Listen, and, and, and the answer for us is often the same. You know, we, we stress eat, we stress shop, we stress watch, we stress drink. You know, whatever that thing is for you, right, just know this. That is the thing you're going to run to if you face suffering in your life. So, so here's, here's, my, here's my exhortation to you. Don't waste your stress. Don't waste it. Don't wait. This is an opportunity that God has given you. Stress functions like a phenomenal training ground so that when we encounter legitimate suffering, we can learn by habit and training to run to the thing that we know will satisfy. So listen, right now, when you're facing stress, you need to be able to train yourself to say, I'm not going to run to the things of this world that cannot provide. I'm not going to run to entertainment. I'm not going to run to sex. I'm not going to run to power. I'm not going to run to food. I am going to run to the hope that I have in Jesus Christ. Do you see that? So that when legitimate suffering comes, listen, you have built into yourself an instinctual reaction where you know I can only run to him. Nothing else will do. And here's why it will do. Look at the contrast that he draws here between the dead hope 
of the world. Look at the, the inheritance that we have. Listen, he describes it as being imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Three terms that really just highlight, listen, the glory of what awaits us. Our inheritance, in other words, can never perish or be corrupted. It can't be spoiled. Nothing can taint its purity or its beauty. It will never fade. It will last forever. One author said it like this. It is untouched by death. It is unstained by evil. And it is unimpaired by time. Our inheritance is rust-proof. It is sin-proof. And it is time-proof. It will not disappoint, it will not underwhelm, it will not ever disappear or diminish in any way, it will always satisfy, it will always be a delight to your soul, it will never lose its beauty and glory, it will only be increasing in your eyes and in your heart. Its glory, here's why, is eternal. See, what makes its glory so great? Listen, the inheritance that awaits us, the future home that we are heading to, if you just consider this for a moment, this is such comfort for so many of you. This gives so many of you so much hope. In this future home, in our future inheritance, there is going to be no more sin, right? No more sin. No more suffering, no more sorrow, no more pain, no more tears, no more death, no more destruction. Nothing of that will ever be seen. It will only be an eternal glorious reality that is beyond all comparison. In fact, here's exactly, exactly what Paul says. For this, listen, how, how relevant for the people of Peter's time and for us today, listen, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory that is beyond all comparison. You can't even imagine what it will be like, but you need to start trying. Because if you can start to grasp it just even a little bit, it will carry you through the hardest seasons of life. Because we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, Paul says. For the things that are seen are transient, they're temporary but the things that are unseen are eternal. Listen, unbeliever, listen, you, you walked in here today and you are hearing about the living hope that is offered to you in Jesus Christ. Here's my question to you. Again, listen, do you want it? Do you want this kind of a hope? Do you want this kind of an inheritance? Do you want to be able to anticipate this kind of a future reality? Do you want it? Is the spirit of God provoking your heart and your soul right now? Is he opening your eyes to the reality that you have placed your hope in things that are temporary and perishing? They will fade like the rest of this world. Do you want it? If you're in Christ today, are you anticipating it? Are, are you actively engaging your mind in this reality? Are you taking your eyes off of right now the present difficulties you're in? And are you setting your gaze with great anticipation and excitement upon what awaits, for, awaits you in Christ Jesus? This is an exercise of the mind. We need to train ourselves to anticipate what is ahead. And we need to be reminded, listen, where I am going is so much better. It is so much better. What awaits me is so much better. Oh, by the way, did you realize? And it is kept in heaven for you. 
It is kept there for you. It is safe and secure, waiting for your arrival. Don't rush it. It's not going anywhere. That's the good news. It is not going anywhere. It will be there for you when the Lord is ready to take you there. You can't lose it. And that's why, lastly, our living hope is a guarantee we await. It's a guarantee we await. In verse 5, he says, Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Our living hope has everything to do, listen, with our salvation. You know, it's interesting though, as, as, as you think of salvation, this is very common. Most Christians think of salvation in a past sense, don't they? In the past, we were saved, which is true. We were saved. Some of us maybe even think of it in the present sense, but very few of us, I think, think of it in a future sense. That we have been saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. This is exactly, again, again, Peter is pushing us again, just hear this, into the future. There is a future day of salvation that awaits all those who are in Christ Jesus. That's where he wants our minds to go right now in this moment. There is a salvation that is still yet to come. There is a day coming, listen, when we will be, all of us, raised to life. The dead will be raised. And every single human being will be raised into a new physical body. A physical body that is fit for one of two physical realities and physical destinies. A physical body that is fit for eternal judgment in hell or a physical body that is fit for eternal joy in heaven. The word of God says that in Hebrews 9, after death comes judgment. Every one of us awaits a destiny. There is a real place called hell. It is a place of real, physical, conscious punishment where people will pay for their sins for all eternity because they sinned against an eternal God. And there is awaiting many a place called heaven, a place of eternal joy. It is a physical reality where we will experience eternal blessings and joy in the Lord. This salvation here that Peter references is that future day. It is a future day of rescue. It is a day of rescue from the judgment and wrath of God. There is a day coming where the dead will be raised to life and we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ and every one of us will hear a just judgment from God. Romans 9 says this, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. 1 Thessalonians 5.9 says this, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Both of these speak to this future day. And for every follower of Jesus Christ, this salvation, it is a guarantee we await. We will stand before God and we will not receive the just judgment of God because he has already poured it out upon his son on the cross. You see, what awaits us is truly a living hope instead of an eternal death. 
we experience in that future day the welcoming embrace of the Father into his eternal presence. You know, I always experience when I, when I travel, I, I, I enjoy traveling, but I always have this experience when I'm getting close to the end of, of the journey, especially if you've been in, in places that are difficult to travel to, I've been to third world countries, places like that, I always anticipate coming home. And, you know, there's things I miss about home. You know, oftentimes there's, there's practical realities that I miss. There's physical amenities that I miss. There's things that, you know, you, you get familiar with and you get comfortable with, things that you're used to that you just simply miss. And you're like, oh, man, this isn't the same as home. I, I, really, I really can't wait for those good things that I get to enjoy at home. But you see, what makes a home special is not what is there, but who is there. You see, I, I miss a lot of things when I travel, but it's the people I miss most. You know, in John chapter 14, Jesus was telling his disciples that he was going to be leaving them. And, and he goes on to describe that he's going to a place, he's going to prepare a place for them. You know, in my father's house, there are many rooms. You know, the place is going to be phenomenal. It's going to be amazing. It's going to be beyond your wildest imagination. It's going to be so, so good to be in that place. I mean, the, the physical nature of it is going to blow your mind. But you want to know what the disciples were most concerned about? It wasn't what they were going to get when they were there. It was who they were going to get when they were there. And Jesus said this in John 14, 3. He said this, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. And here's the hope that he gives them. And I will take you to myself. That where I am, you may also be. See, as pilgrims, we, we travel to the city of God, but we know that the city to come is the city that comes to us with Jesus Christ. Our final inheritance is, is not merely kept by God. It is actually the Lord himself. You know, God said to Aaron, the brother of Moses, the chief Levite amongst the, the tribe of Levi, he said this, you will have no inheritance in their land, nor will you have any share among them. I am your share and your inheritance among the Israelites. You see, God claims his people as his inheritance, and then he gives himself as their inheritance. See, how can I be so certain and sure of this guarantee that in the end I will get God. How can I be so certain that, that, certain that he will be my inheritance? Listen, what good is it to know that nothing could destroy our inheritance if we could lose it in the end? You see what Peter does here? He says essentially not only is our inheritance kept for us, but we are kept for our inheritance. You see, God is, is protecting and preserving you. Do you notice how he says this here in verse five? He says, you who by God's power are being guarded. By God's power, you are being kept. Yes, your inheritance is kept in heaven for you, but we are being kept for our inheritance. The same power that keeps it safe and secure keeps us safe and secure as we journey through this world. We are guarded or shielded by the very power of God. We are kept in protective custody by our God. You see, salvation is God's work. It always has been God's work. He and he alone is the savior. God saved his people of old. He saved them from exile. He saved them through the wilderness. And he always intended through his salvation to bring them to himself where he would be their God and they would be his people and they would enjoy him forever. Look, we are not exempt from suffering or death. 
because of the power of God. Just hear that again. Listen, we are not exempt from suffering and even death because of the power of God. In fact, we know that following Jesus will often increase these realities. We may suffer in this life agonizing pain, both physical and psychological, psychological because of our faith. God's power does not shield us from trials or difficulty, but God's power does protect us from that which would cause us to fall away. God guards us, did you notice this, through our faith. Let me say that again. God guards us through our faith. You see, we must exercise faith to receive final salvation. Faith is is not, listen, is not as some people believe, some kind of single isolated act. That's not what faith is. Genuine saving faith is faith that persists until the day of redemption. Faith is a continuing trust or faithfulness. You say, well, what exactly does that mean? Is it, can, I, can I doubt? Can I have fear? Yeah, absolutely. We can have doubts. We can have fears. We can even fail and we can fall. All of us do. All of us will. But listen, when push comes to shove, saving faith is persevering faith. There is no final salvation apart from continued faith. You say, well, how can I have this kind of faith? How do I make sure that this is the kind of faith that I have? Here's the good news. God works in us to give and to guard our faith. You say, how does that work? I don't know. I don't, I, there's tension here, okay? there's tension here. Uh, we can't figure all of this out. If we could, we'd be God, okay? But somehow, God is saying to us, he works in us to give us faith, and he is the one who's responsible, and yet we are responsible to exercise that faith. You say, how does that work? I say again, I have no idea. I have tried to figure this out, and I can just tell you, the more I dig into it, the more confused I get. All I know is this, that is true. And that's good news. It's good news. It's good news that God gives us faith. It's good news that God is the one, by his power, who guards us through our faith. Here's why. Because if it was left to us, every one of us would fall. If it was dependent upon you and me, we wouldn't make it. If it was dependent upon you to have enough faith, to muster up enough, to hold on to God, I'm just, I'm telling you right now, and I know this experience, you wouldn't do it. You would let go. You would let go of God. You would fall away. You would fall into apostasy just like that. Every single one of us would be in the exact same position. We would fall away from God if God was not clinging to us. You know, this is so important because the Christian life often feels like it's all dependent upon us, doesn't it? We often feel like this. We're like, God, I feel like I'm hanging on to the edge of a cliff, right? I'm clinging on to the rock. I'm holding on just by my fingernails, and they feel like they're about to peel off. I mean, the the lactic acid in my forearms is burning, and God, I don't know if I can hold on any longer. I feel so weak. I feel so frail. I can't do it any longer. And then we look up, and we realize that God's hands have been wrapped around ours, holding our hands onto the rock the entire time. So while we felt like we couldn't hold on any longer, we have the reassurance that God was never ever going to let us go. We see in the end, listen, it's not our grip on God that saves us, it's God's grip on us. And what we await is the day of our final salvation. Listen, when God, who's been holding on to us, 
grabs our hands and pulls us up into his loving embrace. And we can be finally home in the presence of our Savior. That is our living hope. That is our living hope. And so I ask you again, listen, if you are here today and you don't, you don't know Jesus Christ and you're hearing about this hope for the first time and maybe you're understanding what you've been missing, can I just ask you really clearly, clearly do you want it? Do you want a living hope? Do you want this living hope that is offered to you in the Bible? Do you want a living hope, listen, a gift that you can adore, a glory that you can anticipate, and a guarantee that, you, that awaits you? Is that what you're looking for today? Is that what you want today? And if the answer in your heart and mind right now is yes, then here's what I would say to you. Take it! Take a hold of the living hope that is offered to you in the gospel of Jesus Christ right now, right this very moment. Don't wait, don't wait a moment, don't wait a second. Bow before the Lord right now and call out to him and according to his great mercy, acknowledge that you need his mercy. Say to him, I'm a sinner in need of salvation. I desperately need to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is undefiled, imperishable, unfading, kept in heaven for me. I want it, I need it, I'm going to take it by faith. Listen, fall on your face before the living God and embrace the gift of salvation today knowing that the day is coming, listen, where he will pull you up safely into his loving arms where you will be spared the wrath to come because he poured it out in full upon his own son. And if you are in Christ today, as the worship team comes up, let me just encourage you, listen, take your eyes, listen, this is for you Christian, take your eyes off your circumstances. Take your eyes off yourself. Turn this moment from the dead hope that maybe you've been grabbing hold of in the world, repent of your sins, of trusting in the things that are temporary and in the things whose glory fades away and instead turn and hold fast to the living hope that is yours in Christ Jesus for all eternity. God never promises, listen, an easy time, only a sure future and a safe arrival. This, this is the guarantee we await this is the inheritance we anticipate, and this is the gift we adore. This is our living hope. So we come full circle back to where we began at the beginning of this message as we consider all of this magnificent truth. Listen, this is where your heart should be. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's stand together. And let's pray as we sing in a moment. Father, thank you for the living hope that we've been given in Christ Jesus. We pray now, God, that you would cement these truths in our hearts and minds. We pray, Father, that you would help us not only to understand them, but to take them and embrace them and to live them out in our lives. Thank you for the living hope that has been given to us as a gift of your mercy and grace. May you now receive praise from your people for you and you alone are worthy. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.